This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. My guest today is Dr. Oleg Fabricant. Dr. Fabricant is an acupuncturist and oriental medicine physician with Wild Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. In 2001, he graduated from Pacific College of Oriental Medicine and completed a fellowship with the Department of Integrative Medicine at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center. Oleg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, John. Um, So oriental medicine and acupuncture have been widely used in Asia for for thousands of years. In the context of these uh, Asian practices, what is health? Well, health is the homeostasis, is the balance uh, of yin and yang. There is um, a notion in Chinese medicine that is when the qi, the vital energy, flows smoothly through the meridians, then the health um, to follow, and then the human being and the human body and the human mind will be at peace, and um, there will be no room for disease. How does the approach to disease differ between Eastern and uh, Western medicine in your experience? The main difference, I would say, is that nothing exists in isolation. Um, The disease always has its roots, and the the deeper foundation um, lays in understanding what's causing the disease and what led to that. And this concept of oriental medicine um, includes many different facets, and um, acupuncture is only a small part of it, and it's not actually listed at the very top. The premise uh, of this um, lifestyle, I would say, is to maintain uh, the health, uh, or is to prevent the disease and not wait till you have to start treating a patient or the symptoms arise. Um, Therefore, there's a great emphasis on What's the first, probably the first postulate would be the meditation. What it means by meditation is the state of mind, being at ease, um, being able to process the information, the the surrounding in a way that would not allow you to um, succumb to stress, uh, anxiety. Um, It's easier said than done, of course, but this is the ideal situation. And we believe that if the mind is at ease, um, the nutritional component would follow, meaning that um, maintaining a healthy lifestyle includes um, eating healthy. The choices that we make um, play a, a great role. And remember, we're talking about thousands of years of experience and how this medicine came about is that it's we, we don't exist separately from nature. Therefore, humans are part of the bigger uh, whole, and then we are what we uh, eat and what we consume and how we behave, uh, what we, what the decisions that we make. Therefore, in addition to a state of mind, a meditative state of mind, so to speak, we need to make sure that we exercise. Um, and a great, great um, emphasis was placed on practicing certain uh, arts uh, as Tai Chi and Qigong. Um, some of it became uh, art of, uh, martial arts, and um, but the concept, the foundation, lays within these practices. And of course, the um, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, um, need to um, be efficient enough to sustain and um, our energy. And the premise of uh, this medicine is if the 
vital energy, what we call chi, flows freely through the meridians, there will be no room for disease to occur. Yeah, you mentioned uh, chi and meridians. Could you expand more about when you're talking with patients, how do you explain the practice of acupuncture and the mechanisms of action that make it uh, an effective treatment? Well, uh, there's this premise that acupuncture utilizes its energy system within our body that follows this pathways that we call meridians. Um, and let's step back for a, system, for, for a second and look at meridians from the modern lens. What is meridian? There's not something that we can um, pal- palpate or see, um, although we have charts of it. But if you think about it uh, from the perspective of a modern anatomy, it encompasses a lot of things such as uh, fascia, muscular um, component, uh, nerve, um, branches of the nerves, uh, blood vessels. It's all part of something that carries uh, a substance, whether it's electricity through the nerve conductivity, whether it's blood flowing through our veins. This is the part of this um, a life force, the, what the uh, ancient called chi. So the, the practice of acupuncture is that we utilize this uh, pathways that we, with these meridians, and there are multiple points along these meridians. They're sort of key like a logs. When you insert the needle, you insert the key, and you unlock this free flow of energy. There's, there will be no um, blockages, and the this force will flow smoothly. So the acupuncture treatment really consists of a gentle insertion and stimulation of um, uh, small, tiny needles at strategic points along this meridian pathways. Each of these points uh, essentially provides specific function in regulating this free flow of energy, or blood, if you would, uh, or, or electrical uh, electromagnetic signal. Right. So. When we activate uh, an electromagnetic signal, say we, we're using a point uh, distally on your foot, that signal travels through this pathway, whether it's a, a nerve conductivity, whatever you want to call it. It could be a meridian. Back then, they used very simple terminology. And there's a chain reaction that occurs in nerves and musculoskeletal system and, and subsequently leads to uh, activating of the hormones and uh, uh, down reaction to the internal organs. So this is the nutshell of how acupuncture works. Do you feel like, two couple of follow-up questions that, do you feel like, you know, modern science can kind of adequately explain acupuncture or is there sort of something like lost uh, in transa- translation when you try and like put it in, in sort of scientific terms? And my second question is, you feel like um, a lot of the efficacy of the practice depends on, you know, patients buying into and believing that, um, that it will work and it will help to, uh, you know, counteract their disease? Well, two things. Um, first of all, that modern science great made great progress in explaining some of the phenomena that we uh, as acupuncturists have been uh, learning for, for thousands of years. Um, and with modern technology, uh, that becomes easier. Um, for example, researchers have proposed several processes to explain uh, effects of acupuncture, right? So the conduction of electromagnetic signal is one of them. Um, subsequently, stimulation of hypothalamus and pituitary gland, um, the change in secretion of neurotransmitters and neurohormones. Um, and the most important thing, for example, in treating pain is the activation of body's natural opioid system, right? So this endogenous opioids, the uh, the endorphins um, that we're able to 
to, to uh, stimulate by inserting a needle. For example, using today's diagnostic technologies like functional MRI or PET scan, um, the, uh, the scientists were able to actually see that acupuncture promotes the blood flow to a certain area, uh, stimulates the tissue healing, it facilitates release of analgesics. Um, so it, re it reduces the intensity and perception of pain, relaxes the muscles, reduces stress. We can actually see that um, on images. There's a thermal uh, image that a great indicator of that when what happens with the insertion of needle, there's a part of the brain lights up and they can actually uh, see that uh, on, the on the image. And you can pinpoint which part of the brain that corresponds to a particular function. The other thing that's been also um, studied lately uh, in more in depth is the uh, electric stimulation of an acupuncture point uh, with different frequency and how that changes the, uh, the course of treatment. So there's more and more uh, studies that are coming out um, all over the world, and I'm happy that um, the United States is really catching up uh, with that. There is definitely a lot more body of research that is coming out. To answer your second question, whether patient believes in it and it somehow enhances uh, the healing, is, is that, am I understanding your question correctly? Uh, yes. So there was this notion of placebo, I guess that's where we're going with this, right? So placebo is perceived as um, something separate from, from the treatment itself. It's actually part of any treatment. However, uh, most of the studies are done on animals, right? Whether they're lab rats or, or other larger animals, and they all uh, support the same findings. So it's very hard to, to, you know, just say that placebo is is the that's what's causing it all. As a matter of fact, a lot of the animal clinics right now uh, and the veterinarians practice acupuncture, um, and it's becoming very very popular. Um, the largest uh, and very successful uh, thoroughbred horsing uh, community, um, they have a team of acupuncturists that actually travels with horses and treat them both for performance and rehabilitation. So to, to put the skeptics out there with the placebo is make, playing a major role, um, there are a lot more studies that are on animals that basically support the same theory. Acupuncture is uh, frequently indicated for all sorts of conditions, from depression to diabetes to back pain um, to gynecological issues. I was checking out your your website last night, and it seems um, amazing how many different things um, you can use acupuncture to treat. Why do you think it's such a, a versatile uh, treatment? And is there ever a circumstance um, where you feel it's like contraindicated to use acupuncture? The reason it's so versatile is going back to the beginning of the conversation is we don't see a disease in isolation. There's always, um, it, it, it exists within a larger uh, microcosm and that is human body. Um, we always look at the, uh, at the cause of it, right? And the cause of it lies somewhere within individual. And we always find the way to treat an individual uh, rather than treating a disease or a symptom. So there are many different treatments uh, available to treat one condition, very similar. For example, we'll take headache. Um, there are many different reasons for headache, right? So therefore, there will be either the same treatment from an acupuncture perspective or will be uh, a different treatment for headache. We have hundred different ways to treat headaches. So 
uh, I hope I'm answering that correctly in, in terms of um, understanding your question. So there's different ways to treat the same disease. And, and the key for that is treating an individual and not the symptom. Yeah, I guess what you're saying, right, is that like, as much as say, like, you know, Western medicine likes to kind of split the body up into different spheres uh, and, and, you know, kind of have individual diagnoses for for issues in each of those spheres. Uh, you know, Eastern medicine, we, we kind of see some commonality between disease. Um, I guess, can you, can you elaborate more on, you know, what, like why diseases are, are common throughout different conditions? Like what, what, what is actually happening on, uh, you know, on, on the, I guess, scientific level or, or however you perceive it when you're in, when you're practicing, like what, what is common about uh, disease amongst all these different conditions? Well, the commonality is underlining cause. Um, we, and again, we making the choices early. Of course, genetics play the role, but throughout our life, um, we make the choices of the lifestyle that we live in. And some of these choices uh, result in certain conditions. For example, um, a, a very simple, um, we'll, we'll talk about pain um, since this is, you know, the, the main um issue why people coming into us uh, in the beginning, not anymore, of course, they know that acupuncture is versatile, it can treat many other things. But let's say uh, we see very commonly in New York, what we call the gym rats, right? The people would uh, go to the gym seven days a week, beat themselves up, um, go through this rigorous uh, uh, training, and then come back with all sorts of aches and pains, right? And they would say, okay, I've had multiple uh, surgeries done on my knees. I've had uh, strains and sprains and they take pride in how hard they work and how many injuries they have uh, to the extent that we have to step back and said, but the reason you're here is because of the lifestyle you chose. The, the pain you're coming in with is the result of this overdoing. The other example I would say, the stress is the, the, one of the major contributing factors to IBS. When people come with IBS symptoms, uh, we would always take back and talk about the history, what caused it. And uh, mostly the underlying cause was emotional. A lot of the, um, the symptoms that we can trace back to the amount of stress that this person been under or by choice overworking or any of these circumstances living in a big city. And New York is, is a good example of that. We see a very particular pattern in New Yorkers, very, very driven, very hardworking, very ambitious, but there's a price to pay for that lifestyle. So there's always a reason why something happens. How do you kind of, uh, you know, work with that New York mentality that you just mentioned, right? Like people, uh, like you said, the, the gym rat, uh, somebody who really pushes himself physically or, uh, you know, somebody who's really stressed out, they might not even realize, right, that that, that pattern is kind of taking over their life and, and, and leading uh, to disease. How do you kind of like, you know, uh, show somebody a mirror and, and help them realize that maybe some of the patterns they, they viewed as positive are, are actually contributing negatively to their health? It takes time. Um, it takes some of the trust, um, the building trust with the patient where they really understand what you're telling them. And you need to produce a result first. You need to show them that acupuncture can actually treat their pain, for example. And it takes few treatments when they finally realize, yes, I see the difference. Now they will listen to you. 
and slowly we start peeling these layers of the onion, trying to get to the bottom of it. And when the person start realizing how much of the um, of this their own doing, they start to to understand. And we always try to educate from you know taking a little bit more time for themselves and and, and resting and relaxing and find this um, um, way to to get the stress out of their system, not necessarily by going to the gym and, and running, which makes many people happy, again, for endorphin production, right? So we all know about this runner's high, but they don't know that acupuncture can actually produce very similar results because we can also um, produce the endogenous uh, opioids and produce this endorphin. So then they start to, uh, to trust you and they start to understand. And um, it takes time, but also there are some people who don't really want to change. And at that point, you have to step back and say, look, I'm here to help, um, but I also want to see the results. We cannot go in circles. I'm treating you. You're feeling better. You're going back. You're hurting yourself. And you're back again. One more technical question about uh, acupuncture. Um, so as, as I understand, uh, there's another sort of uh, similar practice called dry needling that is emerging among physical therapists and other healthcare professionals. Can, can you kind of compare dry needling and acupuncture? Are they similar? Are they different? And, and kind of what is the, the difference in their approach? Well, it's an interesting point because dry needling essentially is acupuncture. It's more of a legal um, point of the, uh, at this time. Um, and the reason for that is this. Um, this is the way that some of the profession trying to uh, circumvent the requirement of actually being trained in acupuncture. As a matter of fact, um, in New York State, we are, uh, as a profession of acupuncture, had defeated multiple bills to to allow physicians who, or not physicians, or any other practitioner who has been trained in acupuncture to be allowed to practice dry needling. And there are many reasons for that. Major reason is the safety. So essentially, dry needling is uh, needling uh, trigger points, um, uh, mostly with hypodermic needle. Uh, as acupuncturists, we use uh, a filiform, uh, a solid needle, which is much thinner. And some of the points uh, that are used for dry needle is essentially the uh, the trigger points. So it's just not an issue of um, whether it's acupuncture or not. It is. Once you insert the needle in an acupuncture point, it is acupuncture. The question is uh, whether the practitioner is trained, whether they use the proper technique, and it all comes down to a legal term. And in New York... Um, uh, it is not legal uh, to do dry needling um, for anyone except, I believe, for a licensed physician. want to turn to some other aspects of oriental medicine. I know um, you incorporate herbs into your practice. Can you describe uh, to our listeners situations where uh, you turn to herbal medicine? Herbal medicine is a major part of, of the system, of this philosophy, and um, the major difference between the herbal medicine and let's say the allopathic approach to treatment is that we're using a combination of herbs. Rarely do we use a single herb um, for treatment. And there's a very important distinction. The way the formula Chinese medical, uh, Chinese herbal medicine is combined is is a very eloquent um mutual support of ingredients. There's a key, a main ingredient. Um, there are uh, ingredients that guide that um, herb into the area that we want it to go. 
there are other group of verbs within the same formula that um, counteract some of the uh, maybe side effects of a particular herbs to make it very, um, uh, I would say, uh, safe in, in the sense that if we have multiple herbs and each one supplementing the action or controlling the action of the other, it's a very, very safe way to do it. And we use it a lot for internal conditions, uh, digestive issues, gynecological um, problems. So um, herbal medicine is an art. Uh, it's not a simple prescription of a single herb. And I want to make that very clear that um, finding uh, a licensed or at least trained um, herbalist is very, very important because um, there's a lot of supplements out there and uh, people self-prescribe. By having a good experienced practitioner um, prescribing is, is very beneficial. So the major difference would be that we are not use single uh, ingredient. We use a combination of ingredients. We use it for treatment of internal conditions. Um, so that's a major part of the practice in general for people who do practice oriental medicine is including herbs. What do you uh, officially classify as an herb? Is it anything that is grown? Is there, you know, is it basically any, th there's no real man-made, uh, you know, meddling with, with the ingredients? What do, you, what do you consider an herb? And then what, when, once you get into the realm of supplements, as you're saying, what suddenly becomes not an herb? Well, herbs are also, when we're talking about herbal medicine, we also incorporating the minerals and some of the animal products. Um, so it's not just the, uh, the, the herb or the branch or the root or the leaf of the tree or the bush. So there is a, a broader concept of this. So, but you are correct. There is nothing man-made um, in this medicine. So we don't isolate one active ingredients um, as it's done in pharmaceuticals. Although a lot of the pharmaceutical news are derived from botanical um, sources, right? So we know that a lot of the medicine came from herbs, but this is more of a modern invention, isolating one active ingredient and, and trying to, to make that work. And this is more or less, as I said, um, a very uh, eloquent um, way to to address the ailments by supporting multiple functions of the body, supporting an individual. And the, mostly we prescribe individual uh, formulas. That means we base some of the classic formulas and we add ingredients based on the presentation, based on the patient's constitution. And um, we try to prescribe it that way. So that, I hope it answers your question. Yeah. What, what are some common herbs you use and, and what conditions do you use them to treat? Um, it's not a question of a common herb. There are formulas, as I said, uh, they're a combination of herbs. The, um, the use of herbal medicine is limitless. Uh, you can use it for anything. Um, so, but the key, um, and to, to prescribing herbs in practicing oriental medicine in general is identifying the underlying cause of it and trying to find the most direct, the most specific formula you can find. Um, there's an art to it. This is why uh, this medicine is so individual, and holistic. We based it on the person, whereas allopathic or homeopathic is basing it on, uh, you know, treating a one individual symptom, whereas this is more holistic. Can you uh, expand more on some of the, uh, uh, the, the 
movement healing practices that you mentioned? I think you, you talked about uh, Tai Chi. Uh, how do you uh, typically bring those into your uh, oriental medicine practice? And uh, is, are those typically in group settings? Is that something you do one-on-one or kind of prescribed for people to do at home? Well, before COVID, our center was offering actual classes in person. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, instructor who is also a physical therapist. He's at uh, New York Presbyterian. Uh, we had in Tai Chi and Qigong classes. Um, and uh, right now, obviously, it's been put on hold. But in the meantime, I've encouraged all the patients to um, use YouTube and practice individually at home. Uh, group setting is probably the most um, preferable and is because it's an energetic medicine. When you're in a group of people all practicing this energy uh, building um, movement, there's something about it within, something happens when many people doing very similar energetic work. You get um, more energized, you get more inspired, there is something happens. Of course, there's not to say you cannot practice it on your own, but there's very, very um, different um, feel to it when you practice in the group. So ideally, I would prefer people to do it in the groups, but we uh, show, demonstrate some of the basic moves, particularly Qigong, something that doesn't require a lot of space. Um, we can you know, demonstrate it in, in, in the session. We can refer to certain instructors, whether it's in person or online. But what I want to bring up um, to compare this type of movement, Tai Chi and Qigong, let's say working out in the gym, and there's not to say that there's no uh, room for people to obviously working out in the gym, but there are two different ways of building energy. And we're talking about when you're in the gym lifting weight and you're tired, you do it after work, you're actually giving off energy. You become more tired, essentially. Whereas when you're gathering energy with Tai Chi and Qigong, that makes you more alert, that makes you um, re-energized, revitalized. And I would prefer that people combine both. There's always room for um, strong exercises with weights and and all all this um, high-intensity classes. But there's got to be a balance like anything else in this medicine. It's all about the balance. It's homeostasis. You got to do some practices that also relax you and give you more energy. What is the distinction between Tai Chi and Qigong? Are they very similar practices or? They are similar in the sense that they're both energetic practices. Um, Tai Chi is more of a slow martial art movement. If you ever looked at the practice of Tai Chi, it resembles somewhat of a Kung Fu style movement, but if you speed it up, this is basically what you will see. It's a, it's a kind of a martial arts style movement, but it's done at a very, very low speed. Um, it engages all your muscles and it doesn't, um, it appears very simple, but it actually gives you a nice workout uh, in a different sense. Um, Qigong is more of a breathing incorporating exercise, maybe with a little bit of less movement. There is some, but it's more of a statically um, gathering energy with some movements, but mostly breathing. And that's very important. Ideally, I would like patients to practice both if they can, um, but there are certain medical uh, Qigong practices that address particular illness, for example, asthma. They're great exercises for lung expansion and, and creating a more capacity. Um, there are good exercises for uh, 
liver conditions. So they're a little bit more medically geared, and whereas Tai Chi, it is both uh, good for your uh, mental state, it is good for muscle building, it is good for flexibility. So they're slightly different, but they both energetic exercises. How would you uh, compare yoga to those practices as well? Do you see patients, uh, you know, doing all three, just kind of picking one of the three? Uh, how do you kind of decide more about how you want to uh, pick a movement uh, practice? I think yoga is great um, when it's done in the right setting and with the right instructor. Um, yoga is wonderful. Um, I rarely see people practice equally uh, yoga, tai chi, or qigong, uh, because yoga is probably more popular because it is more commercialized and it's readily available uh, in the gyms and the studios, whereas tai chi and qigong is not so much available. It's more of a in traditional practice of uh, certain cultures, you could see that in certain enclaves of New York City, where people gather together in the parks by the water banks and, and they do this exercises together. Um, so I don't think that I've seen someone who's practicing equally, um, but I would probably say yoga is more predominant, at least in New York and in, I would say in the United States. But I would encourage people to uh, discover Qigong and Tai Chi for themselves and give it a try. I want to talk about uh, briefly more this idea of integrative care. I'm sure a lot of the patients you encounter uh, have previously or are currently, you know, seeking out the services of, of uh, you know, traditional allopathic care. So, um do you feel like at times those can ever come in conflict where, you know, acupuncture and oriental medicine uh, can sort of be in conflict with, with Western treatments that a patient is using? It is rarely in conflict. Uh, it's, it's always um, incorporated. And I'll give you a good example. For example, um, for oncology patients, um, somebody's going undergoing chemotherapy with their myriads of different drugs and, and drugs that counteract nausea and these cocktails that are coming in. And unfortunately, there's really not much um, could be done to support that feeling, uh, you know, of feeling down after the uh, um, chemotherapy. So, and for this, for example, in this particular setting, I would not going to be recommending herbs but I will certainly um, perform acupuncture. And we have a lot of patients who are coming to us for that particular support that they find in energy and reduction of their nausea. So there is always a, a way to, to compromise on certain treatments and um, be flexible. But in our center, we, we have wonderful, wonderful uh, team of physicians and uh, other practitioners that we complement each other greatly. Um, patients are always um, looked at an individual and we never just chase the symptoms. So there's there's great collaboration and there are very few moments that we would say that, you know, the acupuncture would not work for this patient. So that's very rare. Because acupuncture is fairly safe, that's something I want to point out. It's probably one of the most safest uh, intervention that people can can try. Uh, the record is, is is wonderful. So there's really, really um, the low chances of any side effects from acupuncture other than maybe tiny little bruise from the needle, but, but that's about it. I guess to rephrase my question uh, another way, like um, 
just in allopathic medicine, right? Patients tend to take uh, a considerable number of medications. Do you feel like for a lot of patients, there's just sort of this ceiling of, of health they can reach when they have a lot of different, um, you know, medications in their body? Well, I wouldn't say there's a ceiling that they can reach. There definitely there's a plenty of people with um, multiple medication that it takes time, and then we're, you know, in a great position that we can actually access patients' record and see the medications they're taking, and subsequently adjust our treatment to understand what is going on and what are the side effects of those medications or whether there's a conflicting um, data about it. But we're certainly taking a look at all that. And this is what's so special about being part of this integrative group that we can actually see each other's records. We can see hospital records. Um, and that what makes this practice unique is um, that we can actually have all the information that we need to come up with the right diagnosis and, and plan a treatment. It's a little different when the patient comes to a private practice um, and you rely on patients' own world words and maybe they'll bring some records, maybe they don't, maybe they'll tell you the medications they take, maybe they won't. Um, but this is the, uh, the the great part of being in this integrative setting. As you said earlier, uh, Eastern medicine is just a lot about prevention and um, American healthcare is kind of very reactive as opposed to preventative. What obstacles do you see that exist uh, to American, what obstacles exist uh, to Americans from Americans full, more fully embracing preventative care? I think it has to do with the lifestyle that we live in. Um, we're, it is a foreign concept of prevention. We only react to, to a symptom. And uh, that is, in a good case scenario, most people even ignore symptoms, right? So how many times people just ignore the pain here and there, so it's going to go away, but it doesn't. Um, sooner or later, it'll come out. Um, if we could pay attention to our body communicating with us, pain is a signal. Pain is this communicative device that body's getting your attention. If we can pay attention to how much time we actually spend um, in front of the computer and, 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 and stressors that it's surrounding our lives and just step back a little bit and find time for ourselves. And I always stress this with my patients. I always try to understand what is that that individual patient likes, what makes him happy? And that's one of the questions I always ask. What is it that you like to do? Not what is expected of you at work and family settings. What is it that you really like to do? And some of these people uh, they cannot answer that. And it takes them time to actually remember what is it that they really like. And when they find that, I'm trying to build on that. I'm trying to encourage that. Um, so I would say paying attention to your own body and the way the body communicates with you when you're feeling tired, when you're feeling pain, when you're feeling something off, don't procrastinate. Pay attention. What are, what are some of the first steps you kind of use in a clinical setting to, to get a patient to tune in, right? You know, you say people kind of have blocked out uh, over time the things that they like or the things that make them happy. So uh, can you expand more on kind of like what that conversation looks like and how you get people to tune in uh, to what's actually going on inside them? Yes, uh, I'll, I'll use an example of IBS that is discussed earlier. A lot of the digestive systems started with an event or with a chain of events that if you start 
questioning, it's more of a detective work at some point where you start asking people, what is it that led you to this? And the light bulb goes on and said, oh, wow, I didn't even think about it, but it makes total sense. This is what caused it. How do I allow that to happen? And that's where this conversation starter gets us to the next level. And the next level with, okay, well, now that we have more or less identified, what can we do about it in addition to obviously treating the symptoms at this point? That would be my job, but your job would be to do your homework and try to get yourself out of the situation that causes it to, to begin with. So, so that would be the conversation I would like to have. And again, it is a, always a communication with the patient. It's a dialogue. That's probably the most important thing that I think that we do in integrative medicine is that we have this discussion with the patient, trying to really understand them and trying to make them understand themselves. And I think this is the, the, the question that, that opens that lock finally. And as many conversations we have along this journey that we take together, I, I my hope that it pays off in the long term and even if we're able to help right now, I hope that this patient will pay attention to what's going on in his life or her life and then make the changes before it is the time to see us. I'll wrap up our discussion by considering um, just sort of the by mind, body, and spirit, uh, you know, that is so important uh, to Oriental uh, medicine. How does Oriental medicine engage the spirit? Well, spirituality is number one postulate in Chinese medicine, and that's what goes, uh, when I said meditation, that spirituality, is, it's part of it. We're part of nature. Um, the language that's been used uh, to transmit this medicine over thousands of years is the language of nature. The terminology, and this is where a lot of this misunderstanding is happening with the allopathic community, is that the language that we use today is the language that was used thousands of years ago. And the reason it was used that way is because they observed nature, right? The, the earlier physicians observed nature. They put the names on to the certain symptoms as they saw it in, in nature. For example, if somebody would come in with tremor of a hand, what resembles a tremor? If you look around this, um, when the leaves on the trees are shaking, what causes the shake? It's the wind. So they've decided to call it internal wind. So if somebody comes in with tremor, believe it or not, it is still the terminology that we use today. It's an internal wind. So spirituality was a big part of, of creating this medicine and this you know, understanding that we are part of a big um, universe and a part of something bigger than us. There's Taoism and what have you, but just to observe nature and put that spirituality um, makes, you know, would make a big um, difference in somebody who is symptomatic and who's uh, not. I guess my, my last natural question for you would be operating in New York City in Manhattan. How do you get in touch with, with nature when you have so much busyness and, uh, you know, uh, concrete around you, I guess? Well, it is the most challenging part for me personally. I prefer to work on walking to work uh, back and forth. Um, I also try to spend more time by the water. Um, there's different energy, especially along the Hudson River. There's something 
magical about the energy of the water that um, draws me particular, but throughout history, I've noticed that there's a lot talk about water in Chinese medicine being by the water and being re-energized by the water. So as much as I can, I, I'd like to spend time um, by the water and uh, try to find a moment to meditate. But by, by meditation, it doesn't mean that you have to sit down and, and, and you know, chant or, or repeat the mantra. It's just finding a time to actually breathe deeper, relax your diaphragm, to take a breath, and you can spend a few minutes, even as you walk, just to calm your uh, self down to activate the parasympathetic responses by breathing. And again, we're talking about the brain and God access, right? These are all related. So if something is bothering us, it will manifest itself um, in all sorts of chain reaction and production of inflammatory protein in your gut, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the concept of putting this ancient medicine with this modern medicine together and understanding that we are all part of the bigger universe and that there is no difference between Eastern medicine and Western medicine is just one medicine, whatever works. Um, so the whole point of this integrative medicine and particularly is to, to generate this understanding and to be able to offer both. Um, so I hope that we are, you know, trying to do it in a way that people appreciate and they, they, they understand so I'm very lucky to be part of this program, and I'm happy that all of us think uh, alike, and we have a wonderful, wonderful team. Yeah, that's great to hear. I definitely uh, understand what you mean about the water. I actually work in MRI research, and um, you know, a, a common a common thing, right, is a lot of about MRI is that you're you're looking at the protons in people's bodies, and protons come from water. We're we're basically water, right? So it, it's kind of a fun. And, and you need connection whenever you're around water because ultimately we, we are just water. <laughs> exactly. Um, time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. Um, what is your favorite hot beverage? Tea. What kind of tea? Black tea. What is your ideal Saturday afternoon? I like skiing as much as I can get out. I would like to ski in every weekend. What is your favorite book? Ooh, um, I like history. Um, um, the history of New York, uh, Gotham, I would say. What is your guilty pleasure or vice? Hmm. Listening to records um, and not thinking about anything vinyl records uh, and lastly what's a topic in medicine you look forward to exploring more i would say the um the god brain axis is very uh, much of interest of mind and i think that's uh the future of understanding all the gastrointestinal conditions dr oleg fabrikan thanks so much for joining the show good to be with you john thank you for having me That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.